Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. I want to remind you that the show is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Their website is aianimals.org. Check them out, see what you think, and consider donating if you like what you see and you want to help support the ongoing production of the show. And you can listen to any of our prior shows by going to our website, animalstodayradio.com, and you can also subscribe on iTunes and be able to listen on your mobile device. August 20th was World Mosquito Day. World Mosquito Day was first established in 1897 when the link between mosquitoes and malaria transmission was discovered by Sir Ronald Ross. And because today is World Mosquito Day, I thought we'd talk a bit about mosquitoes. Now, if you listen to the news and all, you probably know we're still fighting against diseases that are transmitted by mosquitoes. And I'm going to talk about the Zika virus disease in a few minutes because that's the one everyone's talking about now. But it's interesting that here we are more than a century later and malaria is still one of the most severe public health problems worldwide and the leading cause of death and disease in many developing countries. Now, here's just a few facts about malaria, according to the World Health Organization. Malaria is a life-threatening disease caused by parasites that are transmitted to people through the bites of infected female Anopheles mosquitoes. In 2015, 95 countries and territories had ongoing malaria transmission. About 3.2 billion people, almost half of the world's population, are at risk of malaria. Sub-Saharan Africa carries a disproportionately high share of the global malaria burden. In 2015, the region was home to 88% of malaria cases and 90% of malaria deaths. Individuals at higher risk of contracting malaria and developing more severe disease include infants, children under five years of age, pregnant women, and patients with HIV or AIDS, as well as non-immune migrants, mobile populations, and travelers. Now, let's go back in time a bit and talk about the history of the pesticide DDT, because as you might know, it was widely used decades ago in the U.S. and Europe to fight against malaria. In addition, the use of DDT was and still is highly controversial. DDT, or dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, was created in 1874 by a German chemist, but at the time, it wasn't found to be an effective insecticide. And it wasn't until 1939 when its usefulness to attack pests like mosquitoes was discovered by Swiss chemist Paul Mueller. In fact, Mueller won the 1948 Nobel Prize, quote, for his discovery of the high efficiency of DDT as a contact poison against several arthropods. So this was right around the time of World War II, and because DDT is a pesticide, it was widely used in agriculture. But it also had huge public health achievements. For example, during World War II, there was an epidemic typhus, which was spread by the human body. Body lice. Typhus killed thousands of prisoners in the Nazi German concentration camps, and DDT, being a pesticide, would kill the lice and was used to de-louse people who were liberated from the German death camps. 
We also use DDT to prevent disease in our soldiers, since our U.S. servicemen in Europe were also infected by lice. And as I mentioned, DDT was used against malaria. And in 1955, the U.S. employed anti-malaria programs and widely used DDT in the U.S. and Europe. That pretty much wiped out malaria by killing the mosquitoes that carried the disease. Now, in 1962, author and environmentalist Rachel Carson came out with her book, Silent Spring, which talked about the disastrous effect of DDT upon wildlife and pretty much blamed environmental destruction on pesticides such as DDT. Silent Spring, the, the title of her book, implying that the birds are dying off because they're being killed by DDT, so spring would be silent since the birds would not be singing. She also claimed that there was a link between DDT and the significantly reduced populations of the bald eagle, and birds that had ingested the DDT were found to lay eggs with thinned eggshells, and these unhealthy, diseased shells would not allow many eaglets to survive and thrive, and thus that accounted for the plummeting eagle population. Well, this book started freaking people out about DDT, right? I mean, DDT's destroying nature, fish, our wildlife, birds, it's harming humans. And pretty much because of her claims in the book, along with air and water pollution running rampant at the time, the environmental movement was born and triggered the formation of the Environmental Protection Agency, or the EPA. And guess what? One of the first acts of the EPA was to ban DDT. So in 1972, DDT was banned in the U.S. It was also banned in many other countries. It's still used in some developing countries today. Now, this ban set in motion a major controversy. On the one hand, you got those who thought that DDT was just the greatest thing because it helped fight off disease and people, and this ban would be a death sentence to millions of people. And on the other hand, you have those who thought banning DDT was the right thing because it was hurting the environment and possibly hurting people as well because it's a pesticide. And I'll tell you, 44 years later, after the ban, the controversy continues. And especially now, because we're still dealing with other mosquito-borne or transmitted illnesses like West Nile virus, and we're in the midst of a Zika virus crisis. One of the outspoken individuals calling for the DDT ban to be lifted so we can start using DDT to fight against the Zika virus is Dr. Jane Orient. Dr. Jane Orient is the executive director of the American Association of Physicians and Surgeons and is a member of Doctors for Disaster Preparedness. Dr. Orient claims that the Zika virus is the result of the DDT ban, and it's time to end the ban so we can use it as an effective weapon against the disease. She attributes the 1972 DDT ban to environmental hysteria triggered by events like Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring. She thinks there are many problems with the book, including presenting flawed and inaccurate evidence that DDT was harmful to the environment. The book alleged that DDT was a carcinogen. Dr. Orient says that the pesticide DDT has never been proven to be harmful to humans. It does not cause Alzheimer's or, or cancer, as the book or many would claim. And she says the evidence showing DDT was thinning bald eagle eggshells was flawed. 
the environmentalists and supporters of the ban would claim that DDT was killing off the peregrine falcon and caused it to be a threatened species. But Dr. Orient argued that wasn't true. The peregrine falcon was threatened because people were shooting them. I also read somewhere that the book claims that because of DDT, the robin was, quote, on the verge of extinction. And Carson ignored the Audubon Society's annual bird count, which showed there were no fewer birds in the years prior to her writing her book. So we know DDT reduced the number of deaths caused by yellow fever, malaria, and other mosquito-borne illnesses. Dr. Orient states that DDT was credited with saving 500 million or half a billion human lives and it was the most effective weapon against malaria ever. And millions of people die in poor countries everywhere because of the DDT ban. So her point is, here we are in the midst of a Zika crisis, and instead of lifting the DDT ban so we can use the pesticide to fight this disease off, we're telling people, okay, do what you can to avoid mosquito bites. Use insect repellent, wear long sleeve clothing, apply mosquito repellent, don't get pregnant, and we're spending millions of dollars aggressively pursuing a potential vaccine to combat the Zika virus. And yet we're refusing to employ DDT to deal with this problem. Furthermore, she says, why work on a vaccine that will be very expensive and perhaps not effective when you can use this inexpensive, safe, and effective means, DDT, which is out there and available, which can kill many diseases by killing the carrier itself, the mosquito. This out of the Animal Welfare Institute and the Animal Defense League of Arizona, they have just uh, launched a digital campaign designed to discourage people from buying tickets to this new dolphin park called Dolphinaris, which is in Phoenix. It is owned and operated by Mexico-based Ventura Entertainments, and it's the first captive dolphin attraction to be built in the States in a decade. And interestingly, it sits on property of the Salt River, Pima, Maricopa Indian Community Tribe, and so members of the public had almost no opportunity to influence or prevent it from being built because wow. it's on tribal land, mm. right? In fact, Stephanie Nichols-Young, who is president of Animal Defense League of Arizona, said, quote, we were stunned to learn that a captive swim and dolphin facility was going up in Arizona. It's the wrong place and the wrong time for this attraction. Isn't that interesting? Mm. And this particular park, it's they're only 10 feet deep and they have almost no shade. Oh, so so these poor dolphins are just going to be baking in their little tanks. Anyway, this campaign features a really neat short animated video called Dolphins Born to be Wild. It's only 20 seconds. It's really, really powerful. And you can uh, find it online or or the link is at the Animal Welfare Institute website. It's, uh, it's a real reminder about the stress and misery holding captive dolphins for our entertainment. You're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, host of the show. Well, I'm proud to say we are now in our ninth year of weekly broadcasts, bringing you timely and critical animal news from all corners of the earth. Join us each week as we explore animal welfare and animal rights issues, as well as fun pet topics with fascinating guests and experts. And if you don't catch the show live on your local radio station, you can listen two other ways by going to the Animals Today website, www.animalstodayradio.com, or as a podcast on iTunes. It is so easy to subscribe on iTunes. And when you do, each week, usually on Sunday, a fresh show will download right onto your device. 
pretty cool. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and thanks for listening. Don't go away. More of Animals Today right after the break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Hi, it's Dr. Lori from Animals Today Radio, and here's your Animals Today fun fact for today. Do you ever wonder why your cat bumps their head against you? Well, that unexpected butting of her head is known as head bunting, and this is your kitty's way of bonding with you. She is identifying you as one of her friends, and head bunting is her way of sharing her love and affection. And this is your Animals Today fun fact for today. Welcome back to the show. So it's World Mosquito Day, and we've been talking about mosquitoes. You know, when I was 12 years old, my parents took the family, my two older brothers and younger sister, myself, to South Africa on a photographic safari. And now a little over a few decades later, the primary memories I have of that trip are, are not so pleasant. I mean, it's not like I don't appreciate the fact that I was fortunate enough to be able to experience such an exotic vacation. I mean, how many children get to take a trip to Africa? And me being an animal person, one would think that I must have some wonderful memories of that trip. But too bad, I don't. First of all, we had to take chloroquine or one of the preventative oral medications for malaria. Wow, I'm telling you, it gave me terrible dreams. I mean, I remember waking up in the middle of the night screaming and terrified. I know now what I had experienced was likely a side effect from the medication, but at the time, I just thought I was losing my mind. But probably the biggest unpleasant memory was during one of the day safari trips where you're supposed to go look for animals and admire their beauty. So we're with one of these guided African safari tours, and the 40 or so people included in this group are split up in four or five safari jeeps, and we're out looking for wild animals. And each jeep tour leader has his own walkie-talkie so they can communicate with one another if one spots an elephant or a giraffe or whatever. They can notify the other jeep guides to come over where the animal was spotted so everyone can get relatively close and take pictures and feel special. Well, one of the jeeps spotted a tiger on the prowl for food. And nearby, there was a little gazelle. And do you know what a gazelle is? It looks like a, a deer with long horns. They're, they're beautiful. Just the sweet face of a deer. And this tiger was eyeing and slowly and quietly patrolling this gazelle. So the guide person, walkie-talkie, the other four or five jeep drivers to come over because we're about to witness a kill. So everyone's all excited and the five drivers are approaching and they strategically place their Jeeps, forming a very large circle surrounding and trapping this gazelle in with the tiger in the same confined area in order to assist with this kill. So mind you, this is not nature. This is not the natural circle of life. We are enabling what's about to happen here. And everyone in my Jeep, including my siblings and my parents, are so excited and rooting for the tiger. And it was like supposed to be the coolest thing in the world if you could say, I witnessed a kill in Africa. 
And I'm sitting there screaming and crying because I didn't appreciate what was about to happen. And the guide and people in the Jeep are getting mad at me because you're supposed to talk in a whisper as to not scare the animals. And I'm screaming at the top of my lungs and I turn my back and close my eyes and put my hands over my ears. And it happened. The tiger pounces on and rips the gazelle apart. We witnessed a kill. An unnatural kill, which we facilitated, and everyone is cheering and taking pictures and and thinking they just saw the best thing ever. And I'm sitting there absolutely hysterical and mad. I mean, my brothers, okay, I can understand. But the adults on the safari tour, ecstatic to what just happened. Yes, I know I'm an extreme individual when it comes to animals, but I don't think I was back then. And come on. I remember thinking, what the heck is wrong with these people? And ignore the 12-year-old girl who's crying her heart out hysterically and might likely be mentally scarred for the rest of her life. No, let's just make sure we witness the mutilation of this beautiful animal, which we participated in. So that's my memory. And 40 years later, I'm still mad about that. Now, I hear uh, Africa safaris today are nothing like they were back then. And what happened then would never be allowed to happen today. And these organized groups really go out of their way to protect the animals and their surroundings, but still would would not go back. That experience just ruined it for me forever. I remember everyone wanting to eat an exotic animal for dinner. Everyone thought it was so cool to be able to taste what a buffalo tastes like or zebra tastes like. Even my parents would say, Lori, this is your one opportunity to try a giraffe. No, thank you. I have no desire to eat the same beautiful animals we're trying to appreciate and admire on our safari. And now, of course, as you probably know, I'm vegan and been so for a number of years. I should ask my parents if they really think I feel badly for missing that opportunity to eat African animals. A memory my brothers remind me of on occasion is when I really had to go relieve my bladder during one of our safari tours. I mean, we're in the middle of the jungle, but I had to go. So the driver stopped the Jeep, pointed his finger and told me to go there. And he pointed toward the, toward this little bush. So thinking this guy must know the area and he, he must know that I'd be safe stepping out of the Jeep and that some animal's not going to sneak up behind me and eat me. And my parents are with me and I know they wouldn't let anything bad happen to me. So I get out of the Jeep and walk behind this bush and squat, and in the middle of relieving myself, my brothers, 14 and 16 years old at the time, thought it would be cute and funny to scream out, Lori, watch out, run, there's a lion right behind you. So I take off running for my life back to the Jeep before completing my business. Yes, it's a memory I wish I could forget, and I'm sure I provided a great story for the other members of our tour group to tell when they get back home. Thank you for sharing that with me. After all these years of marriage, I'm still learning little tidbits about your former life. So that was uh, pretty interesting. And even so, I'd like to I'd like to go to Africa someday for a a photographic safari. That's what you were on a photographic safari, right? And uh, even though they did that, you know, stage kill maneuver that you you described, but you know, most of the ecotourism business these days involves photographic safaris, which certainly satisfies most uh, quote-unquote normal people. And yet uh, trophy hunting, unfortunately, still is legal for many animals in many parts of Africa. The latest uh, celebrity in, in this arena is a 12-year-old girl 
from Utah. Her name is Ariana Gordon, and she, of course, comes from a hunting family. And uh, recently, after a safari to Africa where they are shooting and killing giraffe and zebras and I think a wildebeest, and she's posing with them. I really encourage you to look at her Facebook page, which is called Braids and Bows. And so her name is Ariana, A-R-Y-A-N-N-A, Gordon, G-O-U-R-D-I-N. She is 12, and uh, she is a full-fledged hunter and also is a bow hunter. And she is, like we've seen before, proudly and happily posing next to leaning on these uh, dead animals with such pride. And it is it is just so disturbing uh, to me that she just has no insight into, into what she's doing. She posted some things that are the, the typical uh, fallacies and fantasies related to uh, illegal trophy hunting, such as, quote, just because someone chooses to display their trophies doesn't make them a bad person. It represents memories. And she also writes that uh, hunting endangered species is actually one of the only things helping them today. She says, I've never personally witnessed anyone I've been hunting with take a shot unless they know with 100% certainty that it will be a one shot kill. That is nonsense. That's not to say that there's not some degree of uncertainty, she continues. But I think it goes to show that hunters care about an animal's well-being. And is that the most upside-down crazy logic you've, you've ever heard? This is uh, Dr. Peter Spiegel with Lori Kirshner. You're listening to Animals Today. I'm just going to go get some fresh air outside for a moment. We'll be back. Welcome back to Animals Today. I'm pleased to have Stuart Chaffetz. He is investigator for showing animals respect and kindness. You know them as Shark. Welcome, Stu. Thank you very much for having us. Okay, so new news uh, regarding topics. Some people who've listened to know about or follow the news uh, regarding these canned pigeon shoots and U.S. Senator Jim Inhofe. What's going on there? Well, we are extraordinarily pleased to announce that after our three-year campaign uh, against Senator Inhofe, who holds live pigeon suits as part of a political fundraiser, that he's canceling them and will no longer have them. Um, just as a little background, we received a tip from one of his own donors in 2014 that he was holding these, where, where live birds are thrown in the air and shot for fun. And so I went undercover. I paid to go to his political event because it is a political fundraiser Mm -hmm. and I videotaped it on my cell phone and that became uh, you know a really big story it was important you know because he's such a high profile politician and then shark we went back in 2015 and last year and throughout the past three years we've really raged a like relentless nonviolent campaign against him where we exposed uh, criminal activity that was going on on the property used that he had illegally held his campaign fundraiser on federal land. And we just kept uh, really just keeping the, the focus on him and exposing the incredible cruelty that he and his donors committed. And we got a, uh, you know, I did a records request with the Oklahoma Wildlife Department to see if they had any communication with him. And we found two emails that said he will no longer hold these pigeon shoots 
uh, because of the tension, the quote tension yeah. between uh, you know his campaign and the, the state agency because we had been putting so much pressure on him. So it really is an you know an extraordinary turn of events because he is someone who's um, he's very ultra right. You know he's the guy who brought the snowball into Congress because that somehow made global warming a myth. And and you know and he kills a lot of animals and uh, and and you know because of really just uh, you know we, you know strategy and determination uh, you know we we put so much public pressure on him that eventually he he had to shut them down and um, you know we we thank all the people who've helped us mm-hmm. and um, it, I think what this campaign shows is that no matter how powerful a politician is or how corrupt they are or what power they wield that if you just keep fighting stick to your beliefs you keep fighting you do it nonviolently, and you, you you look at every facet as a way to keep the issue alive and exposing it you can win and uh you know this is a real victory for a thousand pigeons that were used every year and not one of them survived yeah. uh, because these were pet birds many of them they had bands on them Somebody owned them and hand raised them, and they had no ability to survive. And we know that because we found dozens, uh, more than two dozen, wounded and injured birds last year at the pigeon shoot site after the shoot was over, and they're just all just left to die slow, cruel death. So it's an important stand against someone who is um, very powerful, very uh, prominent politician, but you can you can have an effect if you just keep fighting. Are you claiming that there was illegal activity or some kind of corruption involved in your investigation? Yeah, we've released many videos about this. Um, and if people want, I would strongly suggest you go to, uh, if you just go to our main website, which is sharkonline.org, and go to our YouTube page. We actually have a website called inhoffcruelty.com, too. And you'll see the videos. In fact, you know, we just had a victory about a week ago where the U.S. Office of Special Counsel, federal government agency, ruled that um, the man who let Inhofe onto the federal land in 2014 to hold the pigeon shoot, that's the one I was at, that he had violated federal law by doing that. So we were just coming off of a one victory where, again, we got media attention to it because we filed the complaint against this guy for letting a politician hold a political event on federal land, which you're not allowed to do. So we just scored that victory. But, you know, people should know that after that 2014 shoot that I was at, we we researched. We didn't just let it go. You know, I researched it. We found out that the land was federally owned, That and then the federal government went to inspect the property. They found there was an illegal garbage pit where they were burning tires and TV sets, and there had been an illegal canned hunting going on there. So all that stuff got shut down because of our campaign. So it isn't just the pigeons, you know, for the shoot that got saved, but because that canned hunting site on the federal property got shut down, um, that saved lives too. And that's the importance of, of being determined and focused where you don't just look at one aspect. You dig and you dig and you dig, and then you find many times that there are questionable or potentially illegal activities going on that, that may not even be related to the event itself, such as the fact that there was an illegal garbage dump on this property he used, that you can you know, put pressure on the, you know, the person that way too. So I always tell people, when you go into a campaign, 
you don't want to just look at it from one angle. Look at it from every angle. Find any leverage you can you can get a hold on to continually expose the cruelty that that person is doing. You just gotta, you know, do a little digging, spend some time online, do some research. It's all part of the campaign, uh, you know, and, and again, it, it does prove to be very worthwhile because we found so many things against Senator Inhofe that we were just able to continually expose mm-hmm. him to the point where he just, it was just easier for him to stop shooting pigeons than to continue getting hit like this. So he was using these pigeon shooting as fundraising events or thank yous for donors, similar to having a dinner or a golf outing elsewhere? Right. Well, it's actually the the official title is Senator Inhofe's annual dove hunt. Yeah. So on a Saturday morning, he would have a dove hunt where they go out and they shoot wild doves. But on Friday, that's when he would hold a pigeon shoot. And you would pay to attend it and either watch or participate. So, for instance, because it's a political campaign, I actually had to pay my own money to go to it because otherwise it would have been illegal. So I paid to go to the Friday event as a spectator. And believe me, I mean, people were doing that. Yeah. So, you know, for uh, um, that Friday, I paid to go watch it. You know, I was I was part of the... The, um, the the campaign event itself, which is a political fundraiser, it goes all to his PAC, his political action committee. Yeah. So all this killing, the, the dove hunt and the pigeon shoot, are part of his uh, political uh, fundraising efforts. And you know, some people would pay thousands of dollars to shoot, and some people would pay a few hundred dollars to watch. And uh, that's you know, they never expected anyone to to really do what we did, and. Um, you know, that's why, it, you know, it was so important to do it. You know, you can't, sometimes when you see these situations, you know, when someone sends you a tip that a, a sitting United States senator is holding a pigeon shoot, um, you've got to take action on it. And, you know, the interesting thing is there were many groups who got that letter, the anonymous tip, but we were the only ones, you know, I was the only person from Shark, uh, you know, from, from all these groups who said, I need to be there and I need to film it and I need to show people because otherwise, if you can't show people, you know, it doesn't have the same impact. And that's a big thing that Shark does. That's why we're so heavy into technology and drones that have cameras and long range cameras is that if you want to affect change, you have to show people what you're fighting for. Right. So, in other words, it's one thing for me to say in office cool for holding a pigeon shoot. It's another thing that I can point you to a video where you see those pigeons being shot out of the sky or walking around in a daze and bloodied, uh, or even one instance where one of the, the workers there picked up an already wounded bird and threw him back in the air so he could be shot again. You know, that it, it makes all the difference in the world. So it's important to be where the killing is. It's important to, to, uh, to, to film it, to show it to people. And then uh, that, that's how you have an impact. Stuart, can you uh, briefly give us an overview of the, the scope of pigeon shooting activities, canned pigeon shooting around the country, and maybe review your uh, activities in Pennsylvania? We've talked about them in previous shows. Right. Well, pigeon shoots do happen in a few states. And Sharp is the leader in the animal rights movement who've been focusing and fighting against pigeon shoots. And I say that because we've been to more pigeon shoots than anyone else. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure if anyone else is going to pigeon shoots except for us. 
We're on the ground. We are, we are rescuing wounded and bloody pigeons. So unfortunately, there are people who take pleasure in, this, in, in just slaughter. Um, there's no other way to describe it. It's yeah. someone who takes pleasure in the brutal killing and wounding and destruction of innocent life. There's, if they wanted to have target practice, they'd shoot clay. If you want to get a thrill from killing just for the sake of killing, you shoot pigeons. And it really, in my opinion, is such a depraved yeah. and unnatural activity where, I mean, I just don't understand, you know, having held many pigeons in my hands and watching some die and being able to rescue and get others to safety. I don't know how anyone takes such pleasure in the destruction of, of life. And I would suggest if anyone ever has a negative uh, opinion of a pigeon, really, you know, come with us. And, and, and you see one of these innocent birds in your hand as they're wounded and they're looking at you and you can feel them, the heart beating against your chest as you're, you're pulling them out of rocks. It's um, where they fell and, and you know, and are, would have died slow deaths if you hadn't been there. Yeah. So it is, it is, it is a, an appalling, appalling activity. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons why we focus so much on it is because if we weren't out there, Shark wasn't out there doing it. Uh, the, the just innumerable lives would just continually be lost from this disgusting sport. And is it legal or not legal? Well, we absolutely believe it's illegal in Pennsylvania. Uh, the problem is that you have district attorneys who won't uh-huh. who won't prosecute cases. So uh, there are states like where I live in New Jersey where it's written in the law you cannot do this. Yeah. It's explicitly written, so there's no question about it. Unfortunately, in Pennsylvania, where we do believe the law is clear, um, you have these district attorneys who just don't want to touch the issue or... Only on very rare occasions will they do something. So it is a complicated issue, but, um, you know, we, we just keep fighting. We just got to keep fighting and exposing them because if we don't, then these, all these hundreds of thousands of pigeons over time will just be lost to utter brutality. Well, on behalf of Animals Today, uh, we want to thank you, Stuart Chaffetz and Shark. Stuart is investigator for Shark. Uh, what's the website uh, people should look at to learn more about this? It's so, um, we're showing animals respect and kindness. The website is sharkonline.org. And from there, you can get to our Facebook page and our YouTube channel and just see all our videos and everything we do. Thank you very much. More with Animals Today after the break. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today. We often say that Animals Today is your home for serious talk about animals, and we certainly cover the most critical and newsworthy topics and issues affecting all animals worldwide. When you join us, you'll hear fascinating interviews with leading animal advocates from all walks of life, from lawyers to whale protectors to authors to tortoise rescuers. Animals Today brings you timely, interesting animal news, and often our guests tell us how we all can take action to help our animal friends. But you know what? Just like you, we also love our companion animals, our dogs and cats and rabbits and more. Listen in and you'll get useful advice from expert veterinarians and animal behaviorists, as well as product news and reviews and more fun stuff. So join us on Animals Today and thanks for listening. 
Welcome back to Animals Today. Hey, Peter. Lori, hey. Peter Wallet-Hub took an in-depth look at 2017's most pet-friendly cities. Wallet-Hub's analysts compared the animal friendliness of the 100 largest cities across 21 key metrics. That's right, and they looked at three major areas or dimensions. One was the pet budget, two was pet health and wellness, and third was outdoor pet friendliness. And within these three groups, there were many subgroups and there were various weightings given to these areas. So for instance, in a pet budget, that was worth 25 out of 100 points on their scoring system. And items such as veterinary care costs, or dog insurance premium. And then under the pet health and wellness dimension, which accounted for half of the survey, items such as the number of veterinarians per capita or the pet businesses per capita, pet-friendly restaurants per capita, we're interested in that, share of pet-friendly hotels, pet meetup groups per capita, and items such as those. And in the outdoor pet-friendliness dimension, which covered 25% of the survey results, Items included dog parks per capita, walk score, pet-friendly trails per capita, and a few other items. So that's how they acquired the data, and the results are pretty interesting, aren't they? Did you look at them? I glanced at them. Oh, I was going to quiz you on them. My memory's not so good. Okay. What cities would you think fall in the most pet-friendly cities? Most pet-friendly. I would say most pet-friendly city would be Austin, Austin, Texas. Yep. Number seven. Seven. Of the top ten, yeah. Mm-hmm. What else? Uh, okay, uh, pet-friendly Tucson? No. No. Uh, I told you my memory's not so good. How but about... But there's, uh, there's two others in Arizona. Really? Oh, I, I, oh you're cueing me now. Um, <laughs> I saw Phoenix and Scottsdale. Yeah, that's right. Scottsdale, number one. Yeah. Phoenix, number two. You know, it's just so hot so much of the year, so that's got to be a negative, don't you think? I guess not. Well, the city must compensate in other ways, right? Okay, right. Maybe there's like one vet for every two households or something like that. Right, right. Boost the score up. Well, number three was Tampa, Florida. Wait, that was one and two? Yeah, number one, Scottsdale. Number two, Phoenix. Number three, Tampa, Florida. Number four, San Diego. I can imagine that, right? Okay. Number five, Orlando. Number six, Birmingham, Alabama. Number seven, Austin, Texas. Eight, Cincinnati. Nine, Atlanta, Georgia. And ten... Las Vegas, Nevada. And then the least pet-friendly cities within this hundred, so the bottom 10, right? Yep. You want to take a guess? You want number 91 or number 100? (laughs) How about number 100? (laughs) No, 100. Uh, Akron. Newark, New Jersey. Newark, okay. Yeah. Also in that bottom 10 of least pet-friendly cities, Charlotte, Anchorage, Philadelphia, Buffalo, Santa Ana, California, Boston, New York, Honolulu, Baltimore, and like I said, number 100 was New York, New Jersey. Hmm. Okay, there's more interesting data in this survey, and the first one has to do with veterinary care costs. And if they're, I guess if they're lower, that would help your score in this survey. So where are the lowest veterinary care costs? Those cities are Columbus, Stockton, Corpus Christi, Bakersfield, and Birmingham. And the highest veterinary care costs, the highest are Washington, D.C., New York, Newark. Newark, Newark's coming up a lot. Portland and and Charlotte. Mm. Okay. The other, here's another interesting comparison. Lowest dog insurance premium. 
That's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that there are regional differences in dog insurance, but obviously there are. The lowest dog insurance premiums, St. Paul and Indianapolis. And the highest dog insurance premiums come in New York City, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, Irvine and San Diego. Those cities are twice as expensive as the cheapest cities for dog insurance. Okay, here's the veterinarians per capita. The most vets per capita, which is purported to be a good thing, Miami, Miami, Florida, Lexington, Las Vegas, Orlando, and Cincinnati, and the fewest veterinarians per capita, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, Boston, and Santa Ana. Wow, Newark is really not so good, is it? No. Most pet businesses per capita, also ranked as a positive, San Francisco, San Diego, New York, Las Vegas, and Seattle, and the least pet businesses. It's like the same, almost the same list. Laredo, Texas, Newark, Detroit, Irving, Texas, and Garland, Texas. Okay. Most pet-friendly restaurants per capita. Tied for first place is Orlando, Scottsdale, Atlanta, Honolulu, and also on the list, San Francisco. Pet-friendly, where you can bring your well-behaved pooch in. To the restaurant? Yep. Fewest pet-friendly restaurants. Omaha, Nebraska, not pet-friendly. Toledo, North Las Vegas, San Bernardino, and Detroit. Most dog parks per capita. Where are there most dog parks per human capita? Has to be some city in California. Well, here's the list. They were all tied. San Francisco, Portland, Las Vegas, New York. Wow. Henderson, Nevada, and Boise. Mm. And the fewest dog parks are places like Hialeah, Florida, Lubbock, Texas, Newark, New Jersey, Santa Ana. You know what I mean? And finally, most animal shelters per capita. I don't know whether this should be a good or a bad thing, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But which cities have the most animal shelters per capita? Chicago, Atlanta, San Diego, Denver, and St. Louis. And the fewest animal shelters per capita? Lexington, Newark, Jersey City, Laredo, Texas, and Detroit. So where do we want to move? We don't want to move to Newark, but how about Phoenix or Scottsdale? Okay. I'm good with that. Okay. All right. Now, how do you think our dogs would do in one of those pet-friendly restaurants? They would not settle. No. They would grab food off everyone's plate. And, I know. I don't know how and any dog. It. I don't know how any dog can be calm with all those smells everywhere. Yeah. You know? uh. And you see these people with their dogs, and they're just sitting there patiently. Yeah. Something wrong with these dogs. <laughs> Thanks, Lori. Yeah, thanks, Peter. That was interesting. And thanks for tuning into Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Animals say fun facts for the day are about koalas. When early European settlers first encountered koalas in Australia, they thought the tree-climbing animals were bears or monkeys. Even today, people still incorrectly refer to koalas as koala bears. In fact, koalas, like kangaroos, are actually marsupials, which are also known as pouched mammals because the adult females have a marsupium, or pouch, where their young stay until fully developed. Koalas are only found in Australia, and they are one of that country's iconic symbols. Koalas have special physical characteristics that complement their tree-dwelling lifestyle including their two opposable digits to grip branches and depict the tasty eucalyptus leaves, their main form of nourishment. And these are your Animals Today fun facts for the day. <laughs> 